Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this rather unusual recording for Fortune and Freedom. I'm joined by John Butler today to try and respond to a reader's question. And I think it's an especially interesting question, which at first thought or at first sight doesn't actually seem that interesting, but the reader might've stumbled on something that I think we need to cover and we need to understand in order to understand where central bankers will take us next. Let's face it, John, right now, central bankers are the biggest factor in the market. Oh, by all means. I mean, they they've, they kind of are the market uh, in in a way that nobody would really have envisioned uh, you know, some years back. So let's dig into this reader mail. Now, I'm going to read it. Uh, it's a bit lengthy, but it's very well written. It's from CW, the initials of the reader. And uh, we haven't yet received permission to use it which means just in case we don't receive permission in time before publishing this video, we're going to sum up what the reader says. But uh, in the vain hope that the permission will arrive in time, I'm going to read this, this letter. I hope you don't mind me replying to this, and I accept I'm a complete novice. But don't the recent troubles in the bond market show that central banks can hold governments to ransom if they can dictate the interest rates for lending money? Basically, they seem to hold all the cards, because if the governments can't borrow money, they can't function. So, should the banking fraternity, which like everything else in the commodity world seems to be in very few hands, wanted to pull the rug from under governments by withholding the flow of money, say to promote the idea of world government because the nations are floundering, they could do it. You don't have to reply to this because I appreciate you can only give so much time to comments. But that's what is in my mind. Sense would say it's not in the interest of banks for nations to flounder, but it depends if they want money or power most. If the banking elite wants world government, it has strong levers in its hands, and that's what the indications are. Many thanks for the reply in case I'm learning. Now, when I first read this letter, I dashed off a, a sort of a quick response which explained where this reader got things wrong. And then I started to think about it, And the more I thought about it, the more plausible it seemed to me. And in fact, the more recent events have borne out that the reader might be onto something. First, before we get to that, John Butler, can you give me the sort of university exam response to what this reader has misunderstood as far as, uh, you know, the academic theories would have it? Well, yes, the the academic uh, construct, uh, modern academic construct around central banking, as it has been practiced in recent decades, really finds its um, its origins in the Chicago School, and in particular, Milton Friedman and John Hicks and some of these guys who basically, uh, and who, I mean, the, the point was this, is that they, they not only naturally saw central banks as being subordinate to the government, but they thought it ideal that nevertheless central banks be independent of the government. And so under any normal financial circumstances, the central bank being independent would do what it thought it needed to be done to maintain a stable financial environment, hopefully a stable economic uh, environment. And presumably that would include some combination of relatively low unemployment and relatively low inflation. And and these these sort of concepts, targets, uh, and mandates are shared in varying degrees by every major central bank today. 
Uh, however, it was also understood, and, and Milton Friedman himself was very clear about this, that if you do get into a situation in which, for whatever reason, the government and the central bank come into conflict, perhaps because some sort of financial crisis is underway, perhaps some other national crisis, perhaps a war situation, who knows what it might be, uh, history demonstrates very clearly that the government wins those battles, that is, that the, that the central bank is not going to be able to take on the government uh, and win. However, one wonders whether that's still the case. I think more modern history suggests maybe it's not. Yeah, the, the challenge, the underlying challenge is that the law is very clear that what central bankers need to do. But if the politicians make the law and they start pressuring the central bank to do something else, then things can get a, a little bit messy. Let's focus on a prime example of what we're talking about, which played out about 10 years ago during the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. Because for all the theory that central bankers are subservient to governments, that's not what played out when Greece was negotiating with the Troika. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is a, I mean, the ECB, to be fair, it is a somewhat different central bank. But I think it does help to illustrate the general point. The ECB is a supranational institution. And while a handful of the governments that comprise the EU are very powerful within the EU, the same simply cannot be said of, of all member governments, uh, all member countries, and that, and that would include Greece. And Greece not only is a relatively small member country, but it's one that was in you know, just demonstrable economic and financial distress, which tends to give someone relatively less leverage at the negotiating table when you're you know, negotiating from a position of weakness. And sure enough, um, notwithstanding the domestic political pressure in Greece to not necessarily follow what was coming from the ECB and in a way being held hostage uh, by the ECB threatening to no longer provide financial support uh, for, for, for Greek debt, you know, that really was putting a gun to their head. I mean, to, to use kind of a, an invidious analogy and yet one that I think is nevertheless appropriate. And I think I think Yanis Varoufakis, who was Greek finance minister at the time, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something, I think, comparably provocative. And so that's a, that's a very sort of clear case of a central bank uh, asserting uh, the power to tell a government what to do, uh, de facto, if not, if not de jure. Let's dig into how that might be playing out elsewhere now. I think it's quite clear that there's a bit of a revolving door between central banks and governments. And most people interpret that to suggest that the, the central banks are becoming even more subservient to governments. I think that's the, the commonly held view right now, that because governments are in financial trouble, you know, at risk of a sovereign debt crisis, central banks have no choice but to supply them with the funds that they need. And the pandemic bore that out really well. But what if the central bankers have certain beliefs, certain you know, economic ideologies or certain geopolitical ideas, especially when they're in groups together, and they decide, or if they have already decided, that they want to push those ideas through and that they can use the requirements of the, the central bank and the government relationship and the financing of the government by the central bank? I, look, Nick, I, I think this, this, whole, this whole idea that that central banks are, are merely either you know, fo following their mandate, uh, which of course is, is, is set by the government, I, I think is simply not borne out by, by the facts. And, and, and really, 
if you take a look at how central banks have behaved at times, they clearly have taken actions which really, really push into the gray area between what is legally allowed and what perhaps is not. And always and everywhere, when they do that, when they push that envelope, it's pretty clear why. They're out to protect the banks. They're out to protect the financial system. And they take these emergency actions probably without broader regard to the general economy. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, they're under pressure. They're under time pressure. One can only, you know, one has to put out the fire before one thinks about the broader implications of doing so. But the pattern's pretty clear. And I think the best way to understand central banks, and this can be benign, it doesn't have to be nefarious, but I think the best way to understand central banks is that they effectively represent a guild, a guild that represents the financial industry and is out to protect itself and its members, while nevertheless, and this is the benign interpretation, nevertheless kind of serving commerce and society as a whole. Because a guild has to be able to sell its product. It has to be able to sell its, its service. And if it only has dissatisfied customers, it's, it's not going to be profitable in the long run. So it, it has to be at least somewhat functional, but that doesn't mean it prioritizes itself in times of crisis. And I think if you look at the way central banks have behaved in recent years, it's clear that they are taking care of the banks first and worrying about the broader economy second. What's also clear is that the history and the creation and, and some of the politics of central banking lends itself very well to nefarious and conspiratorial interpretations. Now, I don't mean to be dismissive of, of, of those you know, conspiratorial and those conspiracy theory ideas, because some of them are quite plausible in my view. And I think, like I said, the, the facts lend themselves very well. So I'm curious, you know, I guess people like us, a lot of them, tend to interpret those those facts and that history in a, in a very nefarious way with nefarious motivations. But I've never really heard you uh, explain to what extent you believe things are a little bit more dodgy behind the scenes. Okay, well, look, let, let's, let's, this is a very cursory look at central banking. And, and any serious economic historian is going to have a go at me for just how much I'm simplifying here. But let's let's go back a bit. The first central bank, at least one that functioned as a central bank in a very narrow and basic sense, I, I stress that, uh, was the Sveriska Riksbank, okay, so the Swedish, the central bank of Sweden. And if you look at why that central bank was created, basically, it was created to enable the Swedish king to more easily prosecute the wars in which he was involved, that is, raise the funding necessary to prosecute those wars. That is, rather than simply have crown assets put up as security, he was putting up national assets as security against the loans, assets over which he didn't necessarily have direct control and didn't even own. And yet, by creating this central bank, um, he was able to pool national assets in a way that had never been pooled before as backing for the loans that he felt were necessary to prosecute the wars. Okay, now let's go to the Bank of England. The Bank of England was created in response to some periodic financial crises that were occurring um, in the, the financial sector, the city of London, call it what you want, uh, back in the uh, sort of in the 18th century and into the 19th century when the bank was finally created. And, and this, it's interesting. So England goes ahead and creates the Bank of England, but the, Scotland never creates a Bank of Scotland. 
I mean, there is a Bank of Scotland, but it's, it doesn't function as a central bank in the same way. And yet, oddly enough, following the creation of the Bank of England, um, England and the city of London still have periodic financial crises, whereas these, these really don't occur north of the border. So it makes you wonder, what was the central bank being created for? And if you want the, the brief answer, ask Walter Bajhat, who was uh, editor of The Economist magazine during the middle part, middle to latter part of the 19th century. And he was extremely critical of the bank. He said, look, the bank is basically here to bail out uh, city banks that get overextended and need to work out their loans and basically to allow that process to occur without potentially harming their counterparties, the other banks. In other words, he was kind of saying that it functioned as a cartel and the Bank of England was there to help that cartel you know, function as such without it appearing overtly so. And, and so he was super critical. And then if you want to uh, go to the Federal Reserve, the creation of the Fed in the US, uh, the movement to create the Federal Reserve Bank really got going after the banking panic of 1907, which demonstrated to all the major New York banking families that one bank in particular, J.P. Morgan, had clearly become more powerful than the others. And as with Caesar, you get this dynamic where all the other powerful New York banks basically get together and propose creating the Federal Reserve System in which a number of banks will share power and prevent any one bank from being dominant. Now, you might say, oh, that's actually benign. Um, and it's just a way to rein in JP Morgan. Or you might say something very, very different, that it was seen as a politically convenient opportunity to create a modern central banking cartel type system, regardless of what you thought of JP Morgan, good or bad. And the smoke that reveals perhaps the fire beneath is that all of the meetings, all of the negotiations, all of the drafting of the proposed original Federal Reserve Act take place not just in secret, but in absolute top level secrecy to the point where the participants in those meetings actually planted stories in the press suggesting they were on a holiday while those meetings were taking place. The level of deception you know, makes you consider the, the ways in which modern security services operate. So they certainly thought they were up to something that the general public might not welcome. Let's finish on, on the reader's email again. And I think the simplest answer to it is that the reader of CW is onto something that just because central banks are forced to finance the governments if they want to avoid a sovereign debt crisis doesn't mean that they are subservient. And in fact, it might mean that they are the more powerful one in that relationship. That's how I would respond to the reader. What's your response? I think it is fair to say, based on events of recent years, that the de facto situation we've ended up in is that central banks, major central banks, you know, ones whose currencies are generally accepted around the world and don't have to rely entirely on, um, on, on you know, just, just a handful of small creditors to keep them afloat. These banks represent what you might call the financial deep state. That is the powers that remain embedded beneath, unseen, in the background and have far more power over the general course of events over long periods of time than the typical overt visible political cycle would reveal. That is left versus right, right versus left, 
there is this embedded financial deep state operating through the central bank that makes sure that no matter who is in power of the government, the financial sector gets treated the way it wants to be treated. And I think that is the best way to understand it today. And now everyone can go back to reading the political headlines, believing they know what's really going on. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.